Okay, good morning. Today is Tuesday, April 27th, 2020. One of the first complicated questions that I received at the very beginning of this um, period uh, in early March was a question from a musician who had been hired to do a wedding and uh, he had received a deposit, a non-refundable deposit, and then uh, the wedding was canceled. So the people making the wedding um, asked for the deposit back. He said, well, but it's a non-refundable deposit. Non-refundable means you don't refund it. And he asked me what uh, Jewish law would say uh, under those circumstances. So. Um, Really, what I want to share with you is just a commercial. Um, on tomorrow afternoon, Tuesday the 28th at 2 p.m., there's a webinar, and I have posted it on Facebook. It's on our Facebook page at, at ADAPT, and it is a, a webinar with two real experts, uh, not someone like me, but two actual experts in halacha in this subject who are going to be discussing this question in depth, and it should be an opportunity for really some in-depth high-level learning, and I recommend it to you highly. I hope to listen in. I'm, I'm not sure that I'll be able to, um, but this is like the Reader's Digest condensed uh, version uh, just to share some of the issues that get discussed in this, uh, in this type of situation. And there are so many applications of this. For example, I mean, just to stay within the Jewish world, I'm sure you realize that millions and millions and millions of dollars had been sent in as deposits for Pesach programs all over the world. And of course, they were all canceled. Are those people entitled to refunds? Um, a very serious issue has to do with school tuition. So for private school, you pay in advance, the money's already in, but then there's no school. And, but the teachers still have to be paid. Or maybe there is some kind of school, let's say maybe there's Zoom one hour a day, but the rest of the day it's not. So are you allowed to ask for a refund? What about if you have workers? What if you have workers that have a contract and you let people, workers go, uh, but, the, but they have a contract that says you have to pay them? There was a directive that was given by a group of rabbis in New Jersey. Uh, and this affected not exactly this situation, but those people who had domestic workers, usually women who would come into their homes, people's homes to clean once a week to clean houses. So there came a point where people were uncomfortable to have people from outside of the home coming inside the home, both for the worker and for the family. But those workers often uh, don't have any other means of support and don't have any safety net often. Um, what, what would happen to them if they're no longer able to receive this employment? One of the suggestions of the rabbis was if you were able to, to try to continue to pay them even though they're not coming. Of course, that's not realistic for everybody. But um, the problem with this, I mean, aside from the human part of it, is in Jewish law, there are multiple sources that deal with exactly this question However, the way to interpret and the way to come to a conclusion about these questions is in dispute. And therefore, it is particularly hard 
to apply the halacha in a given case. And the first thing I want to say is that each individual case has to go to Betin to be adjudicated. Uh, but I want to share with you just a couple of rough guidelines of what informs the discussion. So number one, as a general rule, any work that has already been done has to be paid for. Even if an employer is allowed to end the employment or the person who received the, um, the, the um, deposit is allowed to keep the deposit, but if there was work that was done, that work has to be paid for. That's number one. At the same time, there is such a thing in Jewish law, similar to what is in civil law. In civil law, in the insurance world, is called an act of God. An act of God, something happens that's completely beyond anybody's uh, 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 power or understanding, that sets aside any kind of other obligations. In halacha, there's a term called makas magefa, a plague that affects the entire region. That's exactly what we have. We have a plague that affects the entire world. And therefore, a plague that affects the entire region and that prevents jobs from being done and uh, work from being performed, there is a three-way argument over what the halacha should be in that case. And that's where we come to the problem because of this dispute. One opinion says, the Mordechai says, you have to still pay the workers in full. You agreed to it. You committed to it even though they can't continue the work, but it's through no fault of their own. It's not like they're saying, I'm quitting. There is this makas medina that is preventing them from being able to do it, and therefore you have to continue to pay them. That's number one. Second opinion is that it's got to be divided, meaning the worker and the employer or the one who gave the deposit and the one who's holding the deposit have to divide that amount. Half goes back half is paid. And then the third opinion is that no, Makas Medina does, is no different from any other contract where the employer says, listen, do the work. If you don't come in to do the work, you don't get paid. So what if it's not my fault? So what if it's not your fault that the reason you can't come in is because there is this uh, global pandemic and the law says you can't come in or it's not safe to come in? You're not coming in. So the bottom line is, you're not paid. The problem with, with all of this is if there is a contract that stipulates a non-refundable deposit. So it would seem on the surface, non-refundable means non-refundable. That means under any circumstances, no matter what happens, the, re the deposit is not paid back. The problem with that is that there is a concept in halacha called asmachta. Asmachta means an agreement where it is human nature to understand no person really meant that. Meaning most people, when they sign a contract, let's say to, with God's help, to, to put a deposit down to have a simple shul, and you put a deposit down, and, and, and the contract says non-refundable. Non-refundable means if I decide I really don't like the rabbi so much and I decide to go do it somewhere else, I still have to, they keep the deposit. Non-refundable means that uh, 
if we turn up that day and it's raining and I don't want my guests to have to come through the rain. So I say, you know what, I'm canceling it because it's raining. Non-refundable means you're not allowed to make uh, changes on a whim, uh, especially when the organization has gone to uh, effort and expense to be able to hold your simcha. So that's what non-refundable. But whoever in their minds would think non-refundable means a global pandemic where something completely out of anybody's experience comes, that is not something that was considered in a normal person's mind when they signed that contract. And therefore, one opinion would say, non-refundable contract is not binding under these circumstances. Another opinion would disagree with that <clears throat> and say, no, that's exactly what non-refundable means. You have to think about, when you sign something that says non-refundable, you have to think about what <laughs> the most unusual thing that could possibly happen. Professional Schachter has written about two situations. One is the one I mentioned before about Pesach programs. And here you have to understand that number one, we're talking about gigantic sums of money uh, for a family to go to a Pesach program, uh, not even a high-end luxury program, but uh, just a menschlich with a little bit of a tea room. I mean, you could be talking about eighty hundred thousand dollars for Pesach. That's not at all out of the ordinary. It's gigantic sums of money. And of course, if you have to stay home, and that means you have to make Pesach yourself, and it could very well be you've never made Pesach and you don't have Pesach dishes, so you yourself are going to have to undergo very large expenses just to be able to make Pesach for yourself. The problem, of course, is that Pesach part programs in particular start spending the money very early because from Hanukkah time and even before, they are starting to buy the supplies because they need volume, and they need um, uh, the best deals and they need transportation. A lot of these places are in remote locations. They need to set it up. They need to make sure they have enough of everything. And so by the time February comes along, many of these programs who are often owned by individuals or very small groups, small businesses, they have laid out millions and millions of dollars. Roshakter says, that number one, as I said at the beginning, every case has to come before a betin for adjudication because every case is unique. But number two, um, certainly there needs to be a sense of pshara, of coming to a compromise and a realization that sticking to the letter of the law might put a lot of people out of business, not only out of business, but in bankruptcy and, and impoverished as a result. And at the very least, it, there is strong support to be able to say that for sure they should be able to keep the deposit of the amount that they actually spent. If they actually laid out money, then of course they should be able to keep that amount. Keep in mind that also is complicated because if I bought stuff in advance, and so let's say, of the deposit you gave me, I spent half of it in buying supplies in advance. Well, first of all, 
I might be able to sell some of those. And a lot of these Pesach programs tried very hard to sell their inventory to individuals, number one. And number two, there might be government programs that help those small businesses. So therefore, all of those factors have to, be cut, have to come into consideration. But at the very least, under normal circumstances, a person would be entitled to keep the amount that uh, equals what they actually laid out and were not reimbursed for. The last example I'll give is the schools. And Rav Shachter says, you know, our Jewish schools are already operating uh, at deficits. And in particular, teachers are very low paid to begin with and often paid late to begin with. And if schools would have to give back tuition money, um, these teachers would be uh, totally impoverished. And Rav Shachter says that this is a situation where members of the community should try to the best of their ability to go beyond what the strict law requires. And even if it is within the category of tzedakah, because it certainly is within the category of tzedakah. And by the way, Rav Shachter wrote these comments in the context of his discussion about Yizkar. I shared this with you before, that Yizkar, which was said on the eighth day of Pesach, does not require a minion. And therefore, we said Yizkar at home by ourselves. Rav Shachter said, of course, the main part of Yizkar is where we pledge funds to give to tzedakah. Rav Shachter said it certainly would be a right thing if among the tzedakos we are hoping to supply and to support, and there's so many that need our support, would be our schools who are required to continue paying their teachers uh, but have limited means to do so. And that would be a very important mitzvah uh, to be able to uh, continue that support. So again, um, each case is unique. Um, people are allowed to keep the funds that they either worked for or they laid out funds for. And everyone should try to have empathy and understanding and come to a, um, a settlement that does not cause anyone uh, financial ruin. So this is a very important subject. I've just touched the surface of it. As again, there'll be a wonderful RCA webinar. The details are posted on our Facebook page and I urge you to look into it. It's gonna be a much more practical as we go along. These kinds of questions have come up and they will continue to come up. And hopefully the Jewish people will act in accordance with not only the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law as well. I wanna wish you all a great day.